Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we will be talking about the new Steven Soderbergh film, No Sudden Move. The film premiered on HBO Max on July 1st, I believe. And so if you, and unlike a film that has a theatrical release where they're sort of, you know, you have a time limit, this is an HBO Max release. It'll just live on HBO Max. There's no deadline to watch it, I suppose, or any rush, but it's very good. And I would say you should go watch it. Um, and so we're going to dive into that film and then talk a little bit about Soderbergh's career. So just to start things off, Adam, you were a fan of No Sudden Move. I was a big fan of No Sudden Move. It, it feels like kind of like a noirish thriller crossed with like an Oceans movie, but it's also like about something. So like where the Oceans films very much feel like they're kind of flights of fancy and, and the fun is just watching the characters interact. You still get that fun character interaction in No Sudden Move, but it's also set in 1950s Detroit uh, and it's dealing with race. It's dealing with the auto industry. Um, it's dealing with a bunch of other things that are relevant to the world we live in today, but all along the way, it's super entertaining. And I also liked how it was, it kind of just like throws you in the action. So that like the setup is essentially these two guys are pulling off a heist. The heist goes wrong and they have to figure out who hired them, why they were hired, where they set up, who's at the top. What does this all mean? Um, and that's Don Cheadle and Benicio del Toro. Uh, and it's just a lot of fun kind of like following them along. Cause you also don't know what's happening. Someone pointed out on Twitter as the film stage through their review. Uh, it was really ob interesting observation that I hadn't really thought about but that a lot of Soderbergh's recent output has to do with money and finance in a way that's not just like, yeah, the ocean films, it's like, get the big score. And technically no sudden move is like, they're trying to get a score, but there's a lot of financial underpinnings. And then when you sort of pull back and you see the laundromat and high flying bird and, uh, you know, Logan Lucky is another heist film. And then, oh gosh, I, I almost let them all talk. Even let them all talk, which is about, you know, you know, what, what, are, what's a, what's a book worth. And then you look at like what Soderbergh does in his interviews and he's so concerned about distribution, like openly. So like maybe his contemporaries share his concerns, but he's very much about like money in money out. Yeah. Uh, like, and so, to the point where for him, like, you know, behind the candelabra was just more financial sense to make it as an HBO movie than a theatrical feature. And so he's yeah. very open about, you know, where does money go? How does money shape us? And it's interesting to sort of see the financial factors become a large part of something even like No Sun and Move, which like, like you said, it has sort of these underpinnings of like kind of a crime thriller, you know, job gone wrong. But, but even, you know, as the film builds and reaches its climax, you can see where, where its interests really are. Yeah. And I think that only makes it richer. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I interviewed the screenwriter, Ed Solomon, um, who worked with Soderbergh on the HBO limited series branch narrative thing, Mosaic, which was kind of a choose your own adventure, but not really. Um, and then, you know, he also wrote the Bill and Ted movies and um, uh, Men in now, Black. You see me, now You See Me movies. Yes. And Men in Black as well. But he said the inception, like the idea actually came from Soderbergh and it was the original idea was to do a fun heist movie with the with some members of the Oceans gang. So it wasn't going to be a spinoff, but he described it as like a cousin of sorts 
to those films where it was like, oh, it would be fun to get the gang back together and do something. But in pitching ideas back and forth with Soderbergh in their first meeting, they thought it might be fun to do more of a stripped down, more kind of like an intimate heist thriller and build it around Don Cheadle. And there were other names mentioned for the other role. I think Josh Brolin was a, was maybe going to be the Benicio role at some point. Maybe George Clooney, although maybe George Clooney was supposed to be another character in the film. There's a character that's been unnamed uh, that I think Clooney was supposed to play because he yeah. dropped out. Uh, that makes for- sense. Yeah. Yeah, because this was shot during COVID, so there were all kinds of scheduling complications. But I found it interesting that in talking to him that, you know, it started as kind of like a lark. It would be like a fun film. And then it continued to be a stripped down heist thriller. But in the process of writing it is when he hit upon like, oh, there's all these other ideas. And a big part of his research was going to Detroit and looking at, you know, the redlining and, and how you know, in the fifties, they were destroying all of these black neighborhoods in the, in, in the name of progress, they called it, um, to build establishments that would be populated by, you know, the largely white populace. And it was displacing all these black people from their homes. Um, so that was an interesting, I mean, it's, it's not just like set in the fifties as like a backdrop. It's, it's kind of embracing the setting and time and place and how it's specific to the characters, you know, especially because Don Cheadle's character is black himself. So I thought all of that was really interesting. Oh, for sure. Like the 1950s and especially Detroit, like that stuff is not an accident. That is not just like, oh, you know, Detroit gave us good tax incentives. Let's, (laughs) let's just shoot here. Like it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, oh no, it has to take place in the 1950s and it has to take place in Detroit. And I think it works to the film's benefit. I think this is one of, you know, I, I've, I'm someone, I don't say I run hot and cold on Soderbergh because every time he releases a film now, I'm like, yeah, I got to see this. Uh, I, as far as TV goes, I'm less strict with myself as I still haven't watched the Nick uh, and I still haven't watched Mosaic, but you know, the Nick, I, I think is one of the best things he's ever done. I, I hear nothing with- but good things. And I wonder <laughs> if like, we were talking about, uh, you know, stuff is all concerned with money. And I'm wondering if like they're operating. It's like, this guy is filled with cash and then just pulling cash <laughs> out of a body with unwashed hands. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what happens. That's exactly no, what happens in the Nick. The Nick is not as concerned with money. Although I guess a little bit because it's set at the turn of the century at a hospital in New York. And it's like, how are we going to make money? Um, but it is grotesque. Like the surgeries are very graphic uh, in a really visceral way. Um I don't know that that series, I think, reinvigorated Soderbergh a bit as a filmmaker, because before them, it wasn't like he was going through the motions, but he admitted he was kind of frustrated. You know, he had done Haywire and Contagion, um, which were, you know, critically successful films, I think, but not commercially successful. And Magic Mike was a huge hit, but it was hard to, you know. I think the test audiences didn't like that film. It was kind of a hard road to get made. And then side effects is when he kind of hung up the, the, the decided he, he was going to retire. He was going to retire and no one bought it, but they're like, yeah. all right. Yeah, bye. Side effects. And, and then behind the candelabra was his final film. But uh, I was listening to him on Marin and he said that his retirement uh, lasted like two weeks. He decided he was going to become a painter. So he started taking painting lessons and then he got the script for the Nick and he was like, well, I'm going to do this. (laughs) So, But he said as part of his retirement was motivated by just frustration with the industry and not knowing how to deliver what they wanted. So like, how do I make a thing that is going to make money 
And then where is the thing that I'm going to make? Where does it go where it can make money? Like which studio will take this? You know, who this was before like the streaming wars were happening. So it was before, you know, the big boon of streaming. And I think he said, and I have never seen Che, but he said that Che was also a breaking point for him. Um, I know that's a two-part film. It, it, it took a lot out of him to make. And I don't think it's a, um, a coincidence that after Che, his next few movies were like small and experimental or kind of silly, like the girlfriend experience and the informant um, and even contagion a bit, I think. Yeah. I mean, definitely like Che was sort of supposed to be kind of his epic and the distribution on Che, I think was, was abysmal. Like, I think like it was really hard for people to be like, okay, so it's in two parts and, you know, who, you know, I don't even remember. I think Miramax was distributing it at the time or Weinstein company, or I forget who exactly. Um, you know, kind of like- uh, IFC films. Oof. So yeah. <laughs> And yeah. it was like internationally, it was distributed by a bunch of different distributors. Yeah. So, you know, but, and, and you're right. Like, I think streaming has been a kind of a boon for Soderbergh because now he doesn't really have to worry about the, in a weird way, distribution makes things a lot easier for, for an established filmmaker like Soderbergh. If you're not established, it can be kind of painful because if you have a hit on streaming and no one knows about it, then you're just right back where you started from. But if you're Soderbergh and like you're a name and you're not, you know, it doesn't really matter how many people saw it, then yeah, make movies for Netflix and HBO Max all day because yeah. you don't have to worry about, you know, and that's the thing. Like I think it'd been great to see No Sudden Move in a theater. And yet I can tell if it had been released in theaters, it probably wouldn't have done very well because it is, it's a movie for adults mm-hmm. and it's kind of small scale. It's noirish. It has something to say about uh, America. That's not particularly favorable. It's not a film that's going to like light up the cinema score. And, <laughs> yeah. and when you think about all that stuff, it wakes, it makes me way more sense for Soderbergh just to be like, yeah, put this on HBO max. And, and the same with his previous film, let them all talk which is, you know, yeah, it's Meryl Streep and Candace Bergen and Diane Wiest, but, you know, it doesn't, again, in terms of like what will perform at the box office, Soderbergh knows, and he's like, I'd rather just make this movie because I want to make it and then wash my hands of it, put it on, you know, it goes to the streaming service, HBO gets what they want, I got what I wanted, and we can all just move on with our lives. Yeah, and not not to spoil anything, but let them all talk is not Hope Springs or The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> it is not that kind of film that would light up the box office. And these films are part of he struck a deal with HBO Max. So he's doing just like Fincher struck a deal with Netflix to make a series of films for Netflix. Soderbergh is now making movies specifically for HBO Max. Um, and I think it's the right home for the kinds of movies that he makes. He did say one thing on on Marin that I found really interesting, which was he does differentiate between a movie and a film and Marin said well then you know what is the last film that you make he he described no sudden move as a movie and he said che was the last film that he made meaning that he views the uh, the like everything after che he views as something made 
primarily for entertainment value versus something that is going for awards or something that, you know, is meant to be more critically acclaimed. And I thought that was interesting because I don't necessarily agree with the distinction between a movie and a film, but I also can appreciate how that would be helpful as a filmmaker to know like, who is my audience? What am I trying to do with this movie? And I think that's where he's lived in these past few years. And I think that's where he's flourished because something like No Sudden Move is thought-provoking meaty. It is also supremely entertaining. Well, and I also think for someone who is so financially minded and so concerned with, you know, the audience, not just in terms of will this entertain them, but like what will be the return on an investment? Yeah. You know, for him, it's easy to be like, okay, well, this is, this is the film that may not have a lot of audience appeal, but it's serious and it's dramatic and, and that's what it's there for. And I mean, especially with someone like Soderbergh, who is so... I would, I would say experimental. I mean, he really was at the cutting edge of VOD with uh, Bubble and, yeah. you know, trying to push those boundaries. And like we've talked about on the podcast before, like, you know, he wanted to take control of marketing when it came to Logan Lucky. And he's like, we don't need TV. <laughs> we don't need TV advertising. We can just do it all on, on, on social and online and the film tanked. He's like, well, that didn't pan out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's so interesting is he's not like, well, it was, it was mishandled. He was like, no, it was an experiment and it failed. So what did I learn from that? I learned that social engagement does not equate to people buying tickets. Like that was his big takeaway from that. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Like it's, you can see if something's like lighting up Twitter, that doesn't mean people are going to go see the movie. No, I mean, Edgar Wright and Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, the thing about Twitter is like, it's like 20% of people use Twitter, 20%, one fifth. That's not enough. That's actually very low, but like, because the conversation is so heated, it gives you the illusion that this is what people are talking about. And it's like, no, Mm -hmm. no, this is what people are talking about in this room. That would be like assuming like, if, because you and I are having a conversation right now, everyone's talking about it and no, they're not. <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, speak for yourself. Okay. We're all <laughs> the, the hot film of the moment. No sudden move. <laughs> the career of Steven Soderbergh. Everyone's talking about it. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, you have to sort of, I, I like that Soderbergh has that awareness. And I like the fact that like, he makes movies so quickly that like he never really has time to stumble. Like I thought the laundromat was all right. I thought let them all talk was all right, but it doesn't matter because like, and then he's just right back with no sudden move. And it's like, everything's great again. Like he's already got his next one in the can. It's done. Like it's what's his next one. It's called Kimmy. Oh, that's Um, right. It is Zoe Kravitz. And it's set during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and it's about like a tech worker working at a company. It was written by David Kep. That's an idea that David Kep had a long time ago. But it's like one of those tech companies where like the person is listening in on everyone. So it's like the person at Amazon who's in charge of listening in on Alexa conversations that get flagged to make sure that conversation isn't uh. inflammatory or deadly. And she hears something that may be dangerous, mm. which I think is an interesting. I mean, if David Kep's writing it and Soderbergh's directing it, that's a really in, like intriguing idea for a thriller. So. Yeah, I, I I could hang with that, but again, if even if I can't, it doesn't matter. He'll by the time I see it, he'll be done with his next movie. Yeah. He just moves that fast because he's sort of you know he knows all he has all of his tools, and it really makes me excited for you know he's been teasing the fact that he he's been getting the rights back to his older films, and 
that there's a criterion set on the way. And I think it's really like sex lies and videotape is already in the criterion collection, but you know, there's other films like, and Schizopolis is in the collection as well, but there's also King of the Hill, Kafka. Um, I'm trying to think what else, but like films that were basically his formative period. And like, there's a lot of Soderbergh, like the Soderbergh we know who's like hit the mainstream and sort of like really made it doesn't really, I think, exist until 98 with Out of Sight. Yeah, exactly. Well, and he's talked about it too. And he said the switch that he made in his brain was he made those experimental films that he all that he wrote all of them. And with Out of Sight, he was a director for hire. And he realized that maybe my strength is not in writing my own material, but in elevating someone else's screenplay and bringing a really strong distinctive vision to it and kind of nurturing it and bringing it to light. And then, and in then, the com- and then know, on the commentary track, just getting into fucking getting getting in <laughs> getting the guy enraged at me on ta- on tape. So is that the limey? That's the limey. That's the limey. The the commentary track for the limey is an all timer because it's just the writer getting angrier and angrier with Soderbergh. <laughs> it was along. Why does he get so mad? Because of the changes Soderbergh made, and like he's like, this thing didn't make sense. I had to edit it this way, and the guy's like, no. And he has to be like, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing and the limey is amazing i think the limey is a great film um and but- the, the limey he has said was a disaster when it was done and he it was all created in editing it was not shot to mm-hmm. be presented that way but yeah you're right like it doesn't so he makes out of sight in 98 the limey in 99 also in 99 releases or no the, the next year he releases aaron brockovich and traffic in the same year gets nominated for best director for both of them and wins best director for traffic <laughs> which is just nuts yeah and that to me is like when Soderbergh is like okay now I have clout and then he does Oceans yeah then he does Oceans 11 which is fantastic and again he said in that Marin podcast so Marin was asking him what the Oceans movies were to him and he said that is me as a kid on a playground those are the films where you get all the money all the tools a wonderful cast and you get to just play so he doesn't have to be as uh, strict with his camera movement with his shot compositions because he has all the resources and the time and the money to really kind of just like have fun with this big budget and that's not to say the films aren't artful i think oceans 12 is incredible i love the cinematography in that film um but i i think that's you know i i would enjoy if he made another oceans film yeah although i don't think you can i don't think another i i would prefer if he made like another film that was in the vein of oceans without yeah. doing ocean like basically a yeah. logan lucky kind of deal where yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. very much oceans but like a different setting different cast because he's not going to get pit back and it'd be weird without Pitt. i think yeah and you have elliot gould is gone and right it's it would be tough so but we'll see no no elliot gould, is, elliot gould isn't gone carl reiner is gone. that's right I keep Elliot Gould. That Elliot Gould is dead, and I know that it. And I know that he's not. But every time I look it up, I think he's dead, and he's not dead. And I'm like, oh, thank God. No, no. Elliot Gould is alive. Carl Reiner recently, you know, passed away. But again, part of the crew is is gone, and Bernie Mac is gone. Bernie Mac's been. Yeah, Bernie we, Mac we lost Bernie Mac a while ago, and that still stings. So yeah, I, I just feel like it's it's probably better to just if you want to do an oceans film, like do it in a different way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, still shoot it on an iPhone if you like. Why not? <laughs> I kind of wish he directed Ocean's 8. I think that mm. may have improved that film a little bit. I think it may have improved it as well. Uh, 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like Soderbergh remains one of the more exciting directors, even though he's very, not even though, I think partially because he's so aware of the business side of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and he's, he is a veteran in the sense that he is not just experienced and has been making films since, you know, the mid eighties, but also because he, I'm trying to think how to put this, because he's so open with like, these are the difficulties in getting it made. Like, because he understands how the money works, he yep. doesn't get hung up in ways that like, I think, I think in a weird way, it gives him more freedom because he knows how the money operates rather than being like, well, I'll just attach myself to a lot of projects and whichever gets financed first, that's my next, that's my next one. And I think he's also very intentional in who he's making each movie for. And it reminds me a little bit of David Gordon Green. I remember David Gordon Green defending his film, The Sitter, uh, starring Jonah Hill and also Your Highness. Not as great films, but he was like, I made those for very specific audiences. And for those audiences, I think they worked. I think that I succeeded in doing that. Like David Gordon Green was not making The Sitter to be like a a wide commercial success he was making it for like i want to make a movie that's this kind of movie for these kinds of people that show up to those kinds of movies soderbergh reminds me a little bit of that where you know he's he's very intentional in what he is doing and how he's doing it yeah and i think that'll give him some really exciting longevity and, and you know it's i think a, a new soderbergh film is always cause for excitement and yeah because again like yeah maybe you'll get something like you know, let them all talk, but you might get no sudden move. And I think no sudden move is, is pretty fantastic. And I like, let them all talk. I was really surprised by mm. the twists and turns that story took, but I also found it to be like, just a really like at times a really good feel good movie, just like hanging out on a boat with Meryl Streep. And Lucas right. and <laughs> I, the thing that frustrated me about let them all talk was that I felt it was very circuitous. Like I felt like you had characters kind of talking around what they really wanted to talk about. And so the conversations had this sort of frustrating appeal. And I understand that that's sort of where the film is holding its dramatic tension, but it also sort of made it a, like, just, you're on a boat, just get to where you want to talk about. <laughs> just say, just say, just say, thing. just say the things you want to say. Yeah. I understand that. Um, but yeah, but then again, like I'm in the minor, like I thought Unsane was, was very well done. Um, I that is it's on my list and I think I'm going to prioritize it this weekend because I have not seen Unsane and I want to see it. people like people were like eh, I don't really like Unsane and yeah it is kind of like shock corridor but I I don't know I was with it I was with Unsane I thought Claire Foy was very good in it and it had like a good set of, like and it's one of his iPhone movies yeah um, but it works cool. um, all right well with that let's move on to recently watched what have you seen lately uh, so I wanted to talk about Fear Street Part 1, 1994, which is a mouthful of a title. I had heard very good things about this one uh, from our colleagues, Haley Fouch, Perry Nemiroff, uh, Vini Mancuso. Uh, and, you know, I generally enjoy kind of like teen horror movies like this. I think they're they're pretty fun when they're made well. This is, of course, based on the R.L. Stein books. Uh, so my wife and I watched it on Friday night with the lights off with a bucket of popcorn, and it was tons of fun. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. It's it's a hard R, like gory uh, horror movie, but it's also very colorful and fun and poppy. So it reminds me of Scream in that way. It, it, it's very clearly taking a lot of influence from Scream. Um, and if you don't know the way that it's working, so Lee Janiak was, is the director. She's married to one of the Duffer brothers from Stranger Things. 
which I discovered recently, which I thought was interesting, but it's, it feels, so the way Netflix is doing this is they are releasing, so she directed three Fear Street movies. Part one is set in 1994, part two is set in 1978, and part three is set in 1666. They're all telling a story that like interweaves. So part one is very much part one of a three-part story and they're being released each Friday. Uh, the first one was released on July 2nd um, and then 1978 will be released this coming Friday and then 1666, the Friday after that. She was a, like they. She was in production on these movies for 20th Century Fox when the Disney sale happened, um, and then Disney quickly was like, "We don't want these." So Netflix was like, "We want these." Um, so Netflix took them. Um, but yeah, it's a super fun, colorful uh, horror movie, and what sets it apart is it, it has a queer romance at the center instead of a you know unrequited love story or like a sydney billy relationship it's it's two high school girls who are they were in a relationship they are no longer in a relationship now but they're pulled together by this supernatural force that is taking over their town uh kind of briefly the story takes place in a town called shady side which historically has been host of a lot of gruesome murders over the last few decades and it turns out there may or may not be a reason for that, uh, like a curse or something. Um, and the film largely takes place over the course of one night uh, as they are dealing with some attackers who are potentially supernatural. Um, it's got some really gnarly, gruesome kills that are tons of fun to watch uh, and goes to some really surprising places. So if you're a fan of movies like Scream, I would definitely suggest checking it out. I, I wouldn't say it's on the level of Scream. It's not quite that that high quality, but I had a lot of fun with it, uh, and I'm eager to check out the next two. Sounds good. Um, for me, uh, my wife and I, part of our July 4th tradition is obviously watching Independence Day, but we also make it a point to watch Air Force One, <laughs> um, which doesn't take place on July 4th, but it makes you root for America. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, the film turns, oh gosh, let's see, it came out in 97, so it turns 25 next year. Uh, it, the premise is that Harrison Ford plays the president. He has recently... Uh, arrested a populist Russian who is threatening uh, that government stability. Um, and then he has given a speech, you know, condemning these kind of figures. He gets on Air Force One, uh, some terrorists masquerading as journalists led by Gary Oldman. They board Air Force One, they take it over. And it's essentially die hard on, a, on Air Force One with the president as the John McClane figure. It's amazing. It's, it's it sounds very, so ridiculous, but it's, it's so good. It's so good. It works very well. This is kind of Wolfgang Peterson, like, you know, when he was like in the zone, when he had this and he had uh, in the line of fire. And I mean, obviously, you know, his crowning achievement is still Das Boot. But, you know, this is a very good summer action film back when a summer action film could just be like, here's your movie star. Here's your premise. If it needs to be R rated, so be it. And like, you're off to the races and it's- Or are they saving the world? Or are they aliens? Nope, they're just on a plane. Nope, just dudes on a plane, gotta sit, <laughs> president's gotta save the day. And like, you know, it's it's just fun. It's just a fun movie uh, that doesn't really, like, doesn't pull its punches. Like some innocent people get, get ganked. Uh, you know, they, not everyone, not all the good guys survive, uh, but 
it's it works it's really entertaining uh the new the i i we watched it on 4k and it looked fantastic uh that jerry goldsmith score is is fantastic it's so good uh yeah so just i i you know i you don't need me to tell you that air force one is great but if you do i guess you know it's it's great (laughs) watch air force one it does make me nostalgic for the days when summer blockbusters could be that tightly contained Mm -hmm. because even something like white house down which was you know oh like not a similar premise but that kind of thing they're like what if there's a huge car chase outside they're in this giant vehicle and there's explosions like just get good actors and and good storytelling and you know elevate it a bit to make it a little silly and you can have some fun yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, we there's there's a narrowing effect right now in blockbuster cinema that we're just not, I don't know if to say we're not aware of it, but I'm aware of it because I can see The Matrix. Um, but you couldn't release The Matrix <laughs> without it being a sequel today. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. the Matri- although The Matrix came out in April of 99. But yeah, it's just, there's not a lot of room for like, no studio wants to take risks. So for them, it's like, only adaptations, only fran- only things that can be franchised. Can't, if it's going to be rated R, that's a that's a much bigger decision, you know, that we can't just have an R-rated movie just hanging out there. Yeah. You know, and if it's going to be R, then we're going to sell it as being R, like that's like as if that's a, like makes a movie good or not. So anyway, yeah. the Suicide Squad opening August. Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. The Suicide Squad <laughs> checks all those boxes. It was so funny. We just uh Vinny Mancuso visited the set in 2019 and he asked like so is this a sequel or a reboot and their answer is so dumb (laughs) i won't spoil it for you go to collider and read what their answer is (laughs) you'll get a laugh out of it uh all right well that about does it for this episode if you want to keep up with this podcast you should follow us on twitter adam where can we find you on twitter at adam chitwood you can find me at matt goldberg Thanks for listening, everyone. Next week, we will be back with Black Widow talking about the new Marvel movie for the first time in two years. <laughs> two years. So tune oh, in boy. for our conversation about Black Widow. Thanks, folks. Thanks.